0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a covenant renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Well, let us hear God's call to confession. We find. I call to confession this day out of Proverbs 21, 15. So let us hear the confession. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. So that is our call to confession. A joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. And so we find in this verse here um, that justice is the goal. That justice is something that we want. Um, as righteous people who are in Christ, we ought to want justice to reign. Um, and so we are justified people because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, and we can rest in that. Uh, we also need to understand here, though, that destruction will come to the works of iniquity. And without Jesus Christ, we are indeed all workers of iniquity, and we need that justice of Jesus Christ to indeed cover us. And so that is where we need to rest and lie. We have fallen short. We have not loved the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so when we don't do that, when we're walking in sin, and uh, we walk in unfaithfulness, and we are showing forth that we still are dealing with sin in our lives and that we need to confess those things. So let us go before the Lord. Let us confess our sins to him. All of these things that that we read in the the text here um, should remind us of our need to confess our sins. And so if we are now willing and able, if you would, please take a knee and let us confess our sins to the Lord. closes um, from the last section in uh, Judges. The last Judges that came um, before Gideon happened to be Barak and Deborah. And as verse 31 closed, 531 closed after, at the end of their account, we see that the land had rest for 40 years. Uh, The land had rest for a generation, in other words. But as so often happens in judges, while the judge remains after the confrontation with the enemy, in this case Deborah and Barak, things remain relatively stable. So while they're around, things are fairly stable. However, as time moves on and the judges pass on, the people begin to degenerate into idolatry and syncretism, thus doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The blessings that the defeat of Canaan with Deborah and Barak The defeat of Canaan and Jabin and Sisera had produced, of opening up the breadbasket valley of Jezreel at the time, which was a a very fertile uh, area of Israel. They had opened up that breadbasket area uh, during the time of Deborah and Barak, had now degraded, as we see in chapter 6, to falling back into Baal worship. Falling back into Baal worship for the Israelites relying on Baal and Ashtareth to produce the fertility of the cropland instead of relying upon the Lord God. And such was direct disobedience to Yahweh, and the pattern again that you see so often in Judges repeats here, but with a news twist. You see in The text here, there's a twist. Instead of selling them into the hand of the enemy, if you look at the previous judges, that's what it all says. God sold them into the hand of the enemy. This time, Yahweh gives them into the hand of the Midianites, the Amalekites and the people of the east. So God is giving them over into their hands. So who is Midian and who are the Amalekites? Well, if you remember back to... Genesis 25. Midian was the son of Abraham and his concubine Keturah, who eventually was sent east to get them out of the Promised Land, which was to be given to Isaac and his seed. And so they were passed out of the land to the east. Midian is also the nation that Moses lived with for a time and married into his father, married into, and his father-in-law Jethro uh, came and offered advice to him, and he was a Midianite who was helpful to Moses. And in fact, Jethro's band uh, were called the Kenites, and they continued to dwell faithfully among the children of Israel, as you see in uh, Judges chapter 1. And so they're there. They're dwelling with the Israelites, and they continued to dwell with them. So that meant that there were faithful Midianites, the Kenites, who followed Yahweh, and then there were unbelieving Midianites who continued to wage war against God's people. And this is an important distinction for us to remember, that faith in the Lord God transcends national boundaries and blood ties. So here we have the Midianites who uh, were from the east, but they're dwelling with the Israelites. And so uh, faith in the Lord transcends national boundaries, blood ties. And Gideon's going to learn of some of that as well. The Amalekites, um, they were a clan of Edomites. Uh, You see them in Genesis 36. And the Edomites were a thorn in the side of Israel. They were the first nation, the Amalekites, to attack Israel coming out of Egypt. You may remember that. And uh, they continued, see these Amalekites continued to rise up against Israel. The Edomites, the Amalekites are continually rising up against Israel. They had been with one of the earlier judges. Uh, they, they, they have been with Eglon against Ehud, uh, the left-handed judge. And the Edomites will continue to fight against the Israelites, um, and the Amalekites are going to continue to fight against the Israelites. And they were there uh, during the time of Esther and Haman. Um, Agag, you know, Haman was uh, the son of Agag, which was an Amalekite. And they're going to continue on fighting these Edomites. They're going to continue on fighting against Israel all along through. Uh, time and even going into the uh, New Testament with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, um, the Edomites are there. They're 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 fighting against Israel with the Romans. In fact, Herod the Great, the Herod family, they were Edomites. They are from Edomia, which is Edom. Okay, so the Edomites are one of God's uh, people's arch enemies. Now, why were the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the East, uh, other nomadic peoples who wandered rather than fulfilling the cultural mandate, they're just wandering around in the desert, Uh, why were they coming to Israel? Why were they coming to Israel? So what's the situation that Israel finds herself in here in chapter 6? Well, the Lord had delivered or given them into the hand of Midian to prevail against Israel because the evil Israel had done in the sight of the Lord. You see that in verse 6-1. Because Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord. They had gone after the Baals and the Asherths and all of those things again. The Midianites and their cohorts had so devastated the land for seven years that when they rode in on their camels, the people fled for protection to dens and caves and strongholds that they had made in the mountains and. Verse 62. And and the, the these Midianites would sweep into the land like locusts whenever there were crops in the ground and a harvest had to be was, was available. They were like locusts in number, they were like locusts in devastation. They ruined the sustenance of Israel and her cattle, and they came in just like a locust and they ate everything, they took everything. That's The picture that God is giving us here in the text. It was so bad that Israel, we see in the text, was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. Israel was economically devastated. Why was this? Was it because of these barbarians? It was just random barbarians coming into the land? Is that what was going on? No, it was because the Lord was using them to chasten His people to repentance because they had forsaken Him and served other gods that's what's going on. We'll see that in verse 628 as we get into that section of the text. It's because Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Now what do we expect the Israelites to do? If you're familiar with Judges at all, what do you expect the Israelites to do when oppression comes and all that? We know if you've read through the book of Judges, They're going to cry out to the lord right and so they cry out to the lord because of this seven year long oppression that the midianites are causing on them and so they do in fact cry out to the lord in 6 6. now if you're familiar at all with judges you expect the lord to raise up a judge that's the name of the book right judges and so you expect the lord to raise up a judge to come and save them but this time the lord does something a little different the previous judges He's been raising up judges when they cried out to the Lord. This time, something a little different comes about. He sends forth a prophet instead who will prepare the way for the Savior, the new judge. Much like John the Baptist will with Christ. This time, the Lord makes specific mention to the children of Israel through the mouth of the prophet that they have sinned against the Lord by fearing the gods of the Amorites and not obeying Him, not obeying Yahweh. And so he's telling them, you have gone after these other gods. Why have you gone after these other gods? They're nothing. They're false gods. What the prophet brings against them is really actually called a covenant lawsuit. Because what he's doing is he's telling them all the good that God has done for them. All the good that he has done for them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt, delivering them from their oppressors, from the Amalekites and so forth. That they were driven out of the land of Canaan. And yet, here the Israelites are rebelling against him. They are guilty of transgression. They have broken covenant. So they're the guilty ones. They have broken covenant. They are guilty. For God was able to protect them, and yet instead of seeking after God, they've gone after Baal and Ashtoreth, who can do nothing, who is nothing. By telling them this, God calls them to confession and repentance. He's calling them through the prophets, through the words of the prophets, to confession and repentance. And here is the judgment against them. And yet this is grace because it shows them their need. God's not just leaving them out there. He's showing them their need. He's showing them what they need to do. They need a Savior. They need repentance. Thus, so while Israel thinks her problem, you know, this is where Israel is, and this is where we can often find ourselves too, while Israel thinks her problem is the Midianite invaders, right, that's the problem. That's not really the problem. The actual basic problem is, was not that she was in oppression or being oppressed, but is her idolatry of Baalism. That's the problem. So what about today in our nation? In our church, church here, the church in the United States? Is our basic problem, you know, President Obama? Is our basic problem the Congress, who's just not passing those laws that we want them to pass? Is it the Democrats? Or is it the idolatry that we all suffer with of statism in general in this nation? That we look to the state as the Messiah. We look to the state as the Savior. Is that the root problem? The idolatry of lack of responsibility. The idolatry of seeking after our own personal peace and affluence more than the Lord God. (sighs) Still today, our problem is not those out there, but it's us in here in the church. It's us in here, us in the church who are not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord and trusting him faithfully for all of life and practice. That's where the fault lies. Gideon is going to show us what needs to be done, but first he needs to be called and prepared by the Lord. The people are rebellious. They're oppressed. They're under this oppression. They have cried out to the Lord in their oppression, but they are still not obeying God, as we shall soon see. They still have not repented. And as a side note, isn't that our problem, too? We want the blessing. We all want the blessing of the Lord, don't we? We all want the blessing of the Lord, but we don't want the consequences of changing our lives or forsaking sin. Right? So when we put signs out in our air and say, God bless America. We want God's blessing without the repentance. You know, and we can we can fall into those traps too. We want God to just accept us in our sin unconditionally. As we go in verse eleven, we find Gideon, as you see in, in verse eleven, saying that we see Gideon hunkered down in a wine press. Here the these Midianites are Out there, they're oppressing Israel. Um, It's so bad economically that uh, people are suffering because they don't have food because the Midianites and people of the east are coming in and taking their land. So, what's the alternative? So here we find Gideon coming and hunkering down in a wine press, right, so that he can indeed uh, uh, thresh out his wheat and hide from the Midianites. You know, the wine press is a large vat. Typically either above ground or down in the ground, but it's a place where you can stomp on the grapes and squeeze the juice out and all of that. But it's not going to be super tall, right? You don't need something that's, you know, ten or twenty feet tall. So here he is, probably in a vat this this tall, hunkered down in there, trying to thresh out the wheat so the Midianites don't see him and all of that. So Gideon finds it useful to hide in and thresh the wheat. But as if you make make some uh, you know, connections. We don't have time to really go into that. The reference is important there, though, because what you see here are the elements of bread and wine that are so important throughout Scripture, and it's pointing to some things that that are with Gideon. Again, you know, we don't have time to flesh that out, but let your mind use that to to think think further and deeper in the, this text. So while Gideon's hiding in there. The angel of the Lord comes to the oak tree above the winepress, and he sits down and he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, I'm sure at this point, Gideon probably jumped out of his skin, right? So he's trying to hide. Here he is, hunkered down, threshing wheat, and behold, you mighty man of valor. (laughs) You know, he's probably freaked out a little bit, and uh, jumped out of his skin, and So what we have here is the mighty man of valor hunkering down here in the wine press trying to hide, right? You get the picture, okay? So God's here taking the initiative for the matter when Gideon, or Israel, is expecting nothing. And now the Lord comes to call Gideon to be Israel's next deliverer. And here's this mighty man of valor, the mighty man of valor, down in a pit hiding from the Midianites. He doesn't really look like a mighty man of valor, does he? But you see, here's what God does. He points us to what we are to become. He points us to what we are to become. And he's saying to Gideon, you are going to be a mighty man of valor. This is who I've made you to be. And so that's what God is doing here. This calling that Gideon has here is actually very similar to Moses' calling. God calls them both while they are working. God calls them both while they are working. Both Gideon and Moses come up with excuses as to why they shouldn't be selected by God. Both lead their people away from a mighty and powerful enemy amidst long odds. Both Moses and Gideon also ask God for a sign. And so Gideon is a sort of new Moses who's called by God and commissioned by God to lead the people. And that's what's going on here. In verse 13, Gideon answers that he knew of how God had done great things for Israel. He he understands that God has done great things for Israel, demonstrating that the fathers had passed on some of the history, some of the heritage uh, to the sons. But then he says this. This is what's interesting because the prophet's already been in Israel speaking forth repentance to the people. And this is what Gideon says. But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And is that true? Is that a true statement? Had God forsaken the Israelites? Remembering back to what the prophet said in verse 10, it was Israel that had forsaken the Lord. It was Israel that had forsaken the Lord. And as we see the blatant idolatry to come, it will further demonstrate Israel's fault. It's Israel's fault, not God's. But note the compassion and patience of the Lord. He doesn't smite them dead or anything like that. He turns to him. He turns to him and encourages him to lead Israel from the hand of the Midianites because he is going to send Gideon to do this. God is calling him specifically. And now we come to Gideon's excuses. We see in verse 15, So he said to him, "Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But who am I, O Lord, to lead your people? He comes from a small clan. A small clan in the clan of Manasseh and not only that, I'm the youngest son in my father's house. Who am I to lead your people? Sound familiar? Kind of sounds like Moses, doesn't it? And that can be our question, though, too, can it? Often to God. We can have that question. What are we able to do, Lord? What are we able to do? Here I am. I'm sitting in this small church in Howell, right, with a small congregation. What are we able to do? We're just a small group of people, a small congregation. How can we be effective for building the kingdom here, in this place? But listen to what the Lord says in verse 16. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. You see, the Lord encourages Gideon, I will be with you. That's how you can do this, because I am with you. Is he with us? Is he with this congregation? Absolutely. He is with you. And even though you are, you look may look and think to yourself, Who am I? I'm least. Are you least? If God is with you. Gideon, like Moses, then asks for a sign. And he basically says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And Gideon goes to prepare an offering. Actually, he goes to prepare a huge offering for an impoverished land. He prepares, and he's been beating out wheat, right? And he goes and prepares an ephah of flour worth of bread. Okay, an ephah is actually fairly large, it's like almost two bushels. <laughs> this is a big batch of bread, okay? And uh, so here's a big batch of bread. And he also is going to take a young goat and some broth. And those, this, you know, you think about how much bread, you know, those who bake bread, you know, if you're going to bake like a bushel of bread, this is going to take a little while, right? This is a a lot of bread, okay? And uh, he's going to take this young goat. So this is going to take some time to prepare. And while he's preparing this, the Lord's waiting there for him. He said that he would wait. When he comes back, in verse 20, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And so what the Lord is going to do, what the Lord does here is transform a rock into an altar and then God is communing in this peace offering meal with Gideon. He's communing with Gideon here. The angel of the Lord touches it with his staff and fire rises up out of the rock and consumes it all. And so he's communing here at the rock with Gideon. He's saying, you suck with me. Here you are. Come with me and sup with me. Commune with me. And then something strange happens again, and the angel of the Lord disappears from Gideon's sight. It's at this point that Gideon begins to understand what he's been suspecting for a while. If you read the text, you can see Gideon's kind of suspecting some things here um, about this angel of the Lord here that's appeared to him. And it's at this point, when he disappears, that what he's been suspecting for a while, that this angel of the Lord is actually a theophany. Here, I've been speaking to God himself. Uh, It's a Christophany, an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ, most likely. And he is mortally afraid. He's afraid for his life here. Because he has seen the Lord face to face, he says, and he knows that he ought to die because of that. Because all men are sinners, and he may also know the text in Exodus 33:20 that no one shall see me and live. And so he's mortally afraid; he's afraid for his life. He's petrified. And it's here that Gideon begins to develop some true wisdom, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so wisdom begins. Okay, ha ha, and he begins to put pieces together. But instead of death, instead of smiting him, the Lord says in verse twenty-three, then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And again, we see the grace of the Lord there. And what is Gideon's response? What is Gideon's response there in the text? You see? He worships. He worships. That's Gideon's response. That should be our response as well when we're encountered, encountered by the living God. We want to be people who worship. And so Gideon builds an altar right there to the Lord. Right there to the Lord. And he worships. However, with the presence of the Lord and an altar to him there now... The Lord of Peace has created a problem for Gideon and the Abizrites in Ophrah. Because if you know what's going on here, there's another altar there in Gideon's own father's house. An altar to Baal. So now we have a problem. Now we have a problem. We have an altar to the Lord, the true God of all creation, Yahweh, and an altar to Baal right there in Gideon's own father's house. This is a dilemma. This is a problem. Two opposing altars, you see, cannot coexist. Two opposing gods must clash. When you see the coexist bumper stickers around on those cars, that, that's false. That cannot happen. Two opposing gods must clash. Two opposing altars cannot coexist, despite what the world might tell us. Gideon now finds himself in the toughest, most difficult spot in his life. Even harder, really, than the battle later on against the Midianites. Because he's young, he's immature, he's growing in his faith and all of that. But he's, he comes to this problem, and Gideon must choose this day whom he will serve. He has to choose this day whom he will serve. Is he going to serve his father and Baal, or is he going to serve Yahweh alone? What's going to happen? These two altars can't stay together. He has to face the idolatry you see in his own home. God calls Gideon to the first foundational problem. This is the the root problem right here, Gideon. It's not the Midianites out there. Those are just chasing you to repentance. The true and root problem, foundational problem, is the sin in your own household. In your father's house, in the house of Israel. Before you can deal with the Midianites, you need to repent of your idolatry that's brought the Midianites upon you. That's what you need to do. You need to face the reality of the sin in your own life. You see, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And they must first confess their sins and repent before they can affect the culture that's around them. And alas, that's what we need to happen here in our nation as well. But it's going to begin with small congregations who want to serve the Lord, him and him alone. Just like this small congregation here, just like the small congregation in Ferry, it's going to start there in these small places with faithful people believing, trusting, and loving the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. We also need to root out and break down the idols of our lives, just like Gideon is going to do. So the Lord calls Gideon and the Abizrites to confess their idolatry. And we see in verse 25 26, Now it came to pass that same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So the Lord calls Gideon to action. He calls him into action. And he says, take two of your father's bulls, pull down this altar with them, and then take the second bull. And remember, this is an impoverished land. So take the second bull and sacrifice it to the Lord on the new altar, using the wood from the Asherah pole that you just cut down. In Leviticus 413 to 21, we see that the national sins must be atoned for by the sacrifice of a bull. And that's what's going on here. And so Gideon is called to make a public profession of faith. And so what does he do? He takes ten men in the night and did as the Lord said. Verse 27, we see that. But he did it at night. You now maybe he does it because he's a little afraid, or maybe because he does it because he knows if he goes to do this in the daylight, people are gonna stop him. And it needs to be done, he needs to be faithful. So he goes down, and he takes this down. And sure enough, in the morning, when the men of the city arose, they found the altar, their altar, to Baal torn down. And what's the reaction? They're furious. Who did this? Who tore down the altar to Baal? Who tore down the altar to Asherah? And so they begin inquiring. And it's hard to keep a secret with ten men out there who have helped Gideon right and so word leaks out that Gideon in fact had done this deed and so the men therefore cry out to Gideon's father Joash they come in they're angry they're upset the bail is gone the, the altar to Baal is gone they cry out to Gideon's father Joash for Gideon to be brought out and executed ironically because according to God's law, they were the ones that were deserving of death, right? Because they were serving a false god. They were the ones deserving of death, and yet they're calling for the death of a righteous man. Sound familiar? But what's the response of Joash, Gideon's father, the keeper of the idol of Baal, if you will? Here's what Joash said to all those who stood before him. Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, that is Baal, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Joash, you see, has repented of his idolatry. Gideon's father has repented of his idolatry. The act of a faithful man affected his father and his generation. Joash here repents of his idolatry and he too likewise makes a public profession of faith he too makes a public profession of faith and like Elijah later on in the same general area he calls for Baal to defend himself if he is God let Baal contend for himself if he is God and so Gideon is renamed Jerob Baal as you see in the text there which simply means let Baal contend for himself now that the enemy within is dealt with by repentance and faith, now the enemy without needs to be dealt with. The Midianites and the Amalekites, now they can be dealt with. All this happened during the time when the enemy is there encamped, in coming into their valley, beginning to work their, wreck their havoc upon the land, just as they have done in the past. But now something's different. Now the Lord has raised up a judge for them. He has raised up a defender. He has raised up a warrior for them. And the Spirit of the Lord comes down, and, he, and the Spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon in verse 34. That is, he's being anointed. He is anointed as the savior, as, as all the judges are called, the Yasha, which is similar to the, the, the word for Jesus. And he is the savior now, a little Yasha who would lead his people. He is going to become their savior. Gideon, what does Gideon do? He blows the trumpet of war. And when he blows the trumpet, the Abizrites, that is his plan, his father's people, his people, they gather behind him. Here are these men who had just wanted to kill him because he had poured down the Baal Baal, uh, altar and the Asherah pole. And now they're gathering behind him. They're coming behind him. They too have repented. And this is exciting stuff. Here because of the faithfulness of one man who is called by God. Look what's happening in this clan. The Lord is working mightily in this clan. What an encouragement this would have been for Gideon. Right? He sees the Lord working. In his life already here. And this is an encouragement to him. His family and friends and uncles are gathering behind them because of their repentance. But not only that. Not only that. If you look at the text, warriors from Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali also joined them for battle. God is indeed building the faith of Gideon. He's building the faith of the people. He's equipping them and strengthening both Gideon and the people for the task at hand so that Gideon can lead Israel to victory over their enemies. So let's make make a few connections. Notice that it is after God does his work of redemption by burning up the sacrifice and tearing down the false gods that he sends forth his spirit upon Gideon. You know, this is how God acts. It's what Jesus does. He first accomplishes redemption for his people, crushes the head of the enemy, Satan, and then he sends forth his spirit at Pentecost to anoint his people, to equip them to go forth, just as he does with Gideon. And the first work that the church does in their own lives, and the lives of the people they minister to, is to break down the idols of our hearts, to break down and cast down the idols in our hearts, our lust of the flesh, the lust of our eyes, the boastful pride of life. We need to get rid of those idols and cast them down. And it's a battle to continue that we continue till the day we die. It's a battle that we continue to fight. If we learn anything from the book of Judges, it is that if we are not diligent, the idolatry creeps back in. If we are not diligent to fight and wage that war, the idolatry creeps back in. Little compromises can be made. We are indeed idol factors. We need to recognize in ourselves who we are. And we are idol factors that can make idols out of just about anything. And we need to understand that about ourselves, that we might repent. We need to root out these sins from our lives. We need to tear down the idols and look to the one true sacrifice. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Savior. Us That Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood shed for us that our sins might be atoned for and we might have atonement in him. During the days of Gideon, look at all that God had accomplished for them in the Israelites' redemption. And then he called his repentant people in. After he accomplished all of this, he called his people in for the mopping up operation. So today, Jesus has definitively won the battle. And yet we are to be actively out there giving an answer for the hope that is within us, speaking the truth, casting down the sins that so easily entangle us. Such strength to do that comes from the sustenance represented here at the table. That our strength, you see, is in the Lord alone. He is our true meat and our true drink. We have strength through him and him alone. Today we have the privilege of coming to this table and feasting And communing with the Lord, just like Gideon did, communing with the Lord and with one another. But this joyful feast, where we see our fellowship with the Father, is also an equipping feast. It's a feast that equips us to go out and fight the battle, the good fight of the faith. So, let us come and rejoice in Christ our King. And I say to you, all of this, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWingle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com.